0: Moms, let's see if you can identify with this. This is a regular occurrence at our house. Uh, my wife comes in after hours spent, you know, just cleaning the house, getting it normal. She goes out of the room and she comes back in minutes later, and she's like, "How did that happen? It's a wreck already. I just cleaned." That's called the second law of thermodynamics, <laughs> or children. One of the two. They're very similar. Uh, entropy. That's called entropy. Here's the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics states that the total entropy of an isolated system can only increase over time. That means you lose energy and chaos expands over time. And some of you are like, yep, that's my house, right? It just naturally happens that way. Now, the, the same thing is true in our relationship with with God and when it comes to generations of people following God. You know, the gravitational pull of generations is away from intimate relationship with God. This is something I've observed for, for years and years, but beyond that, this has been a phenomenon we'll see in Scripture for, for thousands of years. The gravitational pull of generations is away from intimate relationship with God, that you start with generations passionate about God, and generations, a couple generations later, that's no longer the case. And that just naturally happens in life, but it's more than that because it's in our culture there's certainly a massive Pull away from a passionate life that's given over to God. You know, it's something that's sad, but that's true in our lives is that if we're not moving toward a deeper relationship with God, we're actually drifting away from Him. You don't really, it's an illusion to think that you just sort of stay. In place. Some of you know this in your marriages. Some of you know you don't just sort of hit pause and stay at the same place. You're either moving closer towards someone, you're moving closer towards God, or you're drifting away from him. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in just a minute in Deuteronomy chapter 6. But before we do that, I just want to tell you about these three chairs that are up here. And maybe if you were, you've been with us for a while, this will sound a little familiar to you. We, our, our staff heard a version of this concept at a conference called D6, uh, Deuteronomy 6, on family discipleship. And they got it originally, we think, from a, uh, a brilliant guy, Dr. Bruce Wilkinson, author and the founder of Walk Through the Bible. And he came up with this concept from a pattern he saw in the book of Joshua and Judges. And it's really a powerful concept. And here's my prayer. As I was praying during worship, I just love that new song we sang, um, that second song, All Hail King Jesus. And as we sang during worship, as as, as I prayed for you, my prayer is that some of you would shift chairs today. That as you hear about these chairs, some of you will discover the chair you're in is not the chair that you want to be in. See, the first chair represents a generation of people that are sold out to Jesus. That when they sing, all hail King Jesus, it's not just the theological concept or a song that they sing that makes them feel good, but it's a reality of their life that Jesus is not just the king, sort of in a theological sense, but he's my king. I've surrendered my life to him. Chair chair number two represents a bunch of people that um, grew up with parents Oftentimes in families like that, that were sold out, that, you know, no matter what walk of life, didn't, not like they were in full time ministry, but life was ministry to them, their parents. They were sold out. They drug them to church every chance they had, they had. I remember growing up like that Sunday morning and back for Sunday evening, and then, you know, during the week. And, and life was really focused and oriented around serving God, no matter, you know, the lifestyle. And it was this this constant conversation, and there was prayer in the home. But somewhere along the way, these guys trusted Jesus probably at a youth camp or in Sunday school. Most most of them, and if you're in this chair, between ages, you know, 7 to 13, gave your life to Jesus. And this chair represents a generation of people, though, that although they know Jesus. They receive salvation at a young age. Their life is not completely oriented around living for him. When they sing, All Hail King Jesus, it's more of a um, theological thing and a song they sing, but not necessarily a personal reality because, honestly, their life is more centered around themselves. And then you have chair number three, and this represents a third generation. And this chair is the people who grew up as usually kids of people in chair number two, their grandparents oftentimes are a couple generations down, passionately served God. Um, But they watched their parents go to church, and actually, kind of, it was just a thing they did. They went to church, you know, when when there was nothing else going on, on the weekends, when there was no sporting events, nothing like that. And um, But honestly, it didn't play much of a role in their life. And then they watched Their parents actually, who grew up, uh, who had a lot of compromise in their life. They said they followed Jesus, but their lives didn't really reflect that. In fact, if you looked at their parents' lives and, and their time and their schedule and their resources, it wouldn't really look much different than anyone else around them in the culture. And this generation basically just walks away. It says, people in church are just a bunch of hypocrites. Three generations i got to warn you right up front, this isn't a fluffy Mother's Day message. But here's my prayer. My prayer is that some of you would recognize that the seat that you're in is not the seat that you want to be in, and that there would be a fundamental shift in your heart here today that would go on not just to impact your life, but to impact generations of people for the kingdom of God. Now, see, Moses, before Joshua... Moses recognized this phenomenon. Here's what Moses says as he's instructing the people at the very end uh, of the time when they've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful. In other words, intentional. Be intentional. Be careful. This doesn't, this isn't going to happen by accident. I want you to pay attention to this. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. See, the natural drift, the gravitational pull of generations is to forget what God did for the generation before them and to drift away from God. To to drift from a place where life was lived for God to a place where life was lived for me, just the way it is. Moses recognizes this, and he says, hey, he recognizes a fundamental thing, and that's that success is typically much more dangerous for our relationship with God than is struggle, And he says, right now, you're going to struggle. You're going to go through this period where you're going to be brought into the promised land, but you're going to have to fight for it. It's going to be hard, but then it's going to go really well. And you're going to have all this stuff and all this success in your life. That's when the danger comes. That's when you got to be careful that you don't forget God, that it's God who did that for you, that it's God who enabled you to get there, that it's God who gave you the gifts and the talents to achieve what you've achieved, that life is really about him because you're Tendency is going to be to drift away from him in that moment. Now, how do you be intentional if you want to pass that down to generations? If three to five to ten generations from now, your heart's cry, and I think if I went around this room and asked you, because I know so many of you, if I asked you, is your heart's cry that you would see your children and grandchildren and great grandchildren follow Jesus, you would say, Yes, that's my heart's cry. doesn't happen accidentally. Here's what he says in verse four. If We want to go back to verse four. Here's, Here's how you be intentional. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It starts with you loving God genuinely, authentically. This is emotionally, but but love in, in the Hebrew concept isn't just e- emotion. It's faithful service. It's being faithful to God. So loving, it is an emotion. You love God with your heart and your affections, but you also commit your life to following him, to following his word, to following the way that he says to live. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It starts with love. Verse 6, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. By the way, when somebody asks Jesus what's the most important commandment, that's the verse he quotes. Love God in the second, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But it starts with your heart for God, your heart loving God. Verse 7, impress them on your children, God's commandments, his precepts. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In other words, parents and grandparents, it is your job, it is your duty, it is your responsibility to instill Um, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. It's like putting, stacking kindling up around the hearts of your children. You can't spark that. But once the Holy Spirit sparks that, that their faith just erupts into flames, that you would be talking about God and his presence and his activity and the things he's done in your life and the way you've lived for him and the way you've seen him come through for you. That you would be having conversations, spiritual conversations with your kids and your grandkids. In fact, that Home Point Center we have out there is all about giving you resources because raising kids is hard. And sometimes we don't know how to have those conversations. So that's about how do you, how do you direct and how do you have conversations and help, how do you help your kids through some of those tough seasons? But it would be that you would, you would continually be just instilling a heart of faith. You talk about it on your way, you know, when you get up at the breakfast table as you're rushing out the door on the way to the volleyball field. You're talking about it on your way home from church. What did you learn? You know, what, what did God speak to you? It's this constant thing. You're going to actually have meals together where you sit down and you're going to direct and it won't be just a, you know, a quick little prayer and move on, but you're going to talk about some of the things that God's doing. You're going to be praying for families in your lives, my circle, my responsibility. You're going to be praying for those in your neighborhood that maybe don't know Jesus yet. And as you do that as a family, you're going to see God start to move on their hearts and your kids are going to be part of that. That's how you be intentional about seeing this happen. That's how you be intentional. That's how you begin to address the tendency of a natural drift in generations. And so Moses says, I want you to remember that when you get into the promised land. Don't forget the Lord your God. Be intentional about it. Be careful. And so flash forward a number of years. Moses is dead and gone. He's passed the baton of leadership on to Joshua. And now Joshua, at the end of the book of Joshua, after the conquest, Joshua is probably about 85 years old at this point, but he's strong. He may be closer to 90. He's strong, and he's led, and he still has a spark in his eye and a passion for God. He bet it all on serving God. He risked for God. Joshua is the first generation. Joshua is the one who said, I'm going to abandon it all and follow God. He's going to be the primary thing in my life. This is the generation that says, God may not call me to go to Africa, but if he did, I would go. God may call me to be a businessman in my community, a kingdom-focused businessman who creates incredible jobs and positions for others with a heart for the kingdom and bring the kingdom into my work, and bring Jesus into my work, and love people towards Jesus, and care for people, and Lord willing, make a ton of money that's going to go to invest and grow the kingdom around the world. For others, it would be, I, I'm going to go, and I'm going to be sent into missions. I remember one of the prayers I prayed as a, as a young man. We had this missionary speaker come into the church, and he called us forward, and we filled out a card. Lord, I will go anywhere you want me to go. I remember that as a child. And I came and I dropped it in that box, and I literally remember praying, God, but please don't send me to Africa. (laughs) He did. But by the time he did, I had a heart for it, and it was an amazing experience. This is the generation that makes sure that their kids grow up in the knowledge of the Lord, that this is the primary thing of importance in our family's life that it's an exception, not the rule, that we would miss being part of the fellowship of believers. This is that generation. And so Joshua, as he's speaking to the people, here's what he says in Joshua chapter 24. He's reminding them, remember what Moses said, I'm going to do this. And so after they've now been through and God has brought them into the promised land and God has come through for them, they saw the Jordan part. They stood around the walls of Jericho and the walls, they marched around seven times. A great, interesting battle strategy. And then let out a big shout and the walls came tumbling down. You got to imagine that impacted you a little bit. You were one of the dudes marching around there. You're one of the, right? Right. They were in, in a battle, and it wasn't going so great, but then God came through, and the sun stood still in the sky, which you're like, wow, how did that happen? Well, if you're the creator of the very fabric of the universe, probably not such a big deal, is it, to alter natural. Mir- miracles are miracles because we believe there's a God who spoke the universe into being unless some of you maybe believe it just sort of happened, which to me is a lot larger step of faith, um, then it's not such a big deal that God would speak into the fabric of his universe and alter or pause, right? So they've seen God come through for them. They've experienced his power. And this is what Joshua says in chapter 24, verse 13. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, In cities you did not build, and you live in them, and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. All the stuff Moses said, this will happen. And now they've come into the promised land, and he's like, it happened. Just what God said, just what Moses predicted. Here you are, and you're experiencing the blessing, aren't you? You're experiencing the blessing of God in your life. Now, he says, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors or the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Serve Yahweh, the one true God, the God that did all this for you, the God that rescued you. Don't go back and be tempted to serve those foreign gods of Egypt. Remember how every one of the plagues judge was a judgment against one of those false gods? Or the gods that Abraham left behind? Back in, the, you know, back in the Babylon, basically, back on the other side of the Euphrates. Serve God. Serve the one true God. Make up your mind that you're in, that your life is not going to be compromised, that you're going to serve God. Make up your mind, he says. But, verse 15... If serving the Lord seems undesirable for you, then choose for yourselves this day who you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my kids so much as they're in my house, and I have influence, we're gonna serve God. Our lives are gonna be serving the Lord. I I have made up my mind. I've seen what God's done. There's no turning back. There's no, for me, there's no saying, man, let's just make this just drift off and make this life about me. No, it's gonna be about God. We're not gonna compromise with idolatry. We're not gonna let other things become the center of our life. God is gonna be the center of our lives, as for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. Some of you grew up in a house like that. And that's the part. Some of you grew up in a house like that, and you are here today. You know, statistically, if you grew up in a house with parents like this that are like, we're serving God. And they sacrificed. The chances of you following Jesus are very, very, very high. And if we had to go around this room, I'm guessing a whole bunch of you would go, yep, that's me. That's my family. I grew up in a house where, you know, my dad was a teacher or a doctor. Or businessmen, they just loved God. They lived for him. It was about him. Grew up in a house where it was a full-time ministry, and we didn't compromise. We made, it was about God. Life was about him. He was the sinner. In verse 16, the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. They said, we're in too. So you have the generation of Joshua. Chair number one. We're in. We're committed. This generation is committed. They're committed to the Lord. And here's what it says, if you flip forward a couple pages to Judges chapter 2. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. So you have a generation who was willing to take risks for God and they experienced miracles they experienced God come through in powerful ways on their behalf because they were willing to orient their life. They were all in. And you want to experience, I, I tell you this frequently, you want to experience the power of God in your life, You tip, typically happens when you go, yes, God, I'm all in. I'm, in, I'm, just, I'm betting the farm. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to say yes to you. And if you want to pull me out of this position of success here because you want to use me in some little podunk place around the world, so be it. My life's a blank check. You write it. And if you think my life will be best invested right here in this community, then so be it. But I'm going to follow you. I've made up my mind. I'm going to serve you. Life is about you. You. I'm going to orient my life. Now, if you grew up with parents like this, they weren't perfect, were they? They were probably hard on you. There were probably areas where you're like, really? I had some areas like that. But the thing you never accused your parents of were being hypocrites. They weren't hypocrites. They were in. They were all in. So the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and all who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel, this generation that personally had experienced the power and the activity of God in their lives and had made a commitment to follow him. And then you have another generation. You have their kids. It says this, verse 8, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. 110 and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath in the hill country of Ephraim north of Mount Gosh and so you have the Joshua generation and then you have their kids maybe some of their grandkids those but man generation 1 is still alive they're still active they're still telling their kids about, hey, remember you? I don't know if you remember this, but you were only four. But you remember when the walls fall down? They're like, yeah. Remember when the sun stood still? D- you were 12. You saw that, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, they, they weren't the, the generation. Generation two isn't the generation that experienced God doing these mighty works, but they heard about him. Parents told them about him. But somehow, in the midst of this generation, I I don't know if it just came too easy for him. The struggle of this generation is always who who's going to be the center of your life, because you 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 don't really understand in this generation. You you never really recall a time where you you weren't serving God or didn't you know know about Jesus. For me, my One of my earliest memories is praying to receive Jesus. I think I was three. And I think it was really genuine when I was three. I believe God saved me. And I remember again when I was seven or eight years old at a church, just this powerful experience with God, and I feel like that was a moment where I was really committed to and experienced his power in a a whole other way. Right? And then as a teenager... Moments at camps and things. But here's what happens as committed as this generation is to betting it all and going after God with all their heart and serving God no matter where God calls them and making that the center of their life. Generation two, primarily the big struggle along somewhere along the way is that the center of your life shifts from God and becomes prosperity and success. That becomes the focus, that it's a subtle thing. You believe in Jesus. You go to church, you know, sometimes when there's not something more important to do on the weekend. But the shift, is, there's been a shift in your heart, and it's not all about God. Your life isn't oriented towards him. You haven't actually stopped to ask the question of God, okay, if you really wanted, is my life, are my hands open before you? Lord, you bless me with all these things. They're yours. You could take them if you want. I'm yours. My life's a blank check. That's never really been on the table. Church has become kind of a thing you do because it had so much value. You looked at your parents. They loved God so much. They were passionate about him, so you just thought, oh, yeah, I want that. I want that value system in my life. You bring your kids to church because you want to instill in them that value system. You want them to have a moral foundation in their life. But for you, he's not really the center. It's just a thing you do. It's an extra thing in your very full plate of activities, I'm not saying any of those activities and things are wrong. What's wrong is what's at the center of your heart. And for people like me who grew up in chair number two, my parents, uh, my parents launched a ministry. My dad was the first Christian in his family. Two guys came into his life. Um, I think they were with, with Campus Crusade for Christ now Crew. They came into his life and preached the gospel to him, knocked on his dorm room door. He he said, get out of here. (laughs) And then later that evening, got down on his knees and gave his life to Jesus. And God rocked his life, transformed his life. He was in. This was during the Jesus movement. Many of you, if you're my age in this room, you had parents who came to faith in the Jesus movement. And many of them were the first serious followers of Jesus in their generation. And they fell in love with God, and God lit up their hearts. Some of you in the generation before, that was your parents. And My parents, they fell in love with Jesus. And my dad was a college professor and ended up um, losing his job because he presented a statistical probability question on the probability of random chance, emergence of the universe kind of thing, right? (laughs) And he they decided, I think they'd been doing some ministry on the side. They decided, I think God's calling us to go full-time now. And you know, right then, and this happens so frequently to people who decide, if you decide I'm going to write God a blank check with my life, I'm in, you make the commitment. He had to decide. He knew that's what God's calling us to do. And right before they ended up going full time, he got an incredible job offer in geology that made a bunch of money. But they made a decision because they knew what God was calling him to do. And you know what? We grew up a missions family. We traveled half the two-thirds of the year in a little orange Volkswagen van all over this country. We were in Europe for five months when I was 20-some countries or something, when I was like 12 turned 13. We grew up with very little, but my parents were very faithful. And what I watched is this this blessing of God on their lives and on their ministry. (laughs) They went for it. They were chair one. You know, I had to, as I grew up, I had to decide what chair I wanted to be in. Do I want to make this life about me? I watched my parents, admire them, trusted Jesus at a very young age. And you know what my parents said? They got me in environment after environment where I had personal experiences with God. Where I encountered God on my own. Youth group. Played a huge role in my life. After that, I went into missions for a while. Played a huge role in my life. See, the challenge in in chair number two is you grew up seeing it. You grew up hearing the stories about it, but the stories haven't always been yours because you never took the risk for God. You never wrote him a blank check with your life. You saw the blessing of your parents' generation because they followed him. You know what? blessing often follows obedience. Now, this is a principle that you see in Proverbs, just like the principle. Some of you, I know you have a great heartache because you loved God with all your heart. You brought your kids up that way, and and some of your kids walked away from Jesus. And you said, Proverbs, it says, train a child up in the way he should go, and in the end, he won't depart from it. Well, that's a principle. There's just something different between Proverbs, which are principles and promises, Every one of us has to decide, are we going to follow Jesus? Are we going to live our lives for him or for us? Every one of us. And so just the fact that you do raise your kid and you love Jesus and you're sold out to Jesus isn't a guarantee that they're going to be. But you can sure pile up that kindling so that when God sparks it, they run after him with all their heart. But still they have to make that choice to follow him, right? But the question is, where are you at on the? Where are you at? See, because chair number three comes along. This is the next generation. Chair number three. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, verse 10, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Sold out, compromised. See, here's what happened in, in, in number two. They got comfortable in these cushy, nice houses. And where God had commanded them not to intermarry with those around, they began doing that, which began drawing their hearts away from God. They compromised. They took on some of these people. They thought, well, we can just actually take these people on as our servant labor. That'll make our lives even easier. Compromise entered. They allowed sin in their lives that their parents wouldn't have. After a while they felt guilty for a while and then they got used to it and it's kind of like, yeah, it's not that big a deal. And along the way, somehow, instead of God being the center of their lives and the one they live for, success, prosperity. Ease of life became the center of their life and the thing they lived for. And now this next generation comes along. And the heartbreaking thing is it says they didn't, not only did they not know God. See, you had generation one. They knew, personally experienced God's work on their behalf because they took risks for God. They saw him come through. They prayed. They had conversations. They shared Jesus with neighbors. Their kids were in on it, right? They told their kids. Kids grew up, came to faith at a young age somehow never decided to slide from chair two to chair one. Maybe nobody ever called them to. Because the heart of every parent is that life would go easier for their kid, right? I tell you this, parents, the best thing you can do is call your kids to live for Jesus. He says, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all the rest will be added. That's what I've watched in the lives of people. And I know a lot of them who are the chair one people who passionately live their lives for Jesus. Guess what? (laughs) They've experienced incredible blessing in all these other ways. Principle, not promise. Sometimes you've got people that passionately live their lives for Jesus and they die broke. There's that too, but guess what? I think eternity will be worth it. Chair number two. Chair number three comes along. They'd not even heard There was a breakdown. You remember what Moses said? Teach them to your kids. Have these conversations. Grandparents, like there's this generational thing. Tell the people what God has done. They they didn't know God. They, They weren't saved. They didn't personally experience relationship with God. And they didn't even know about the works he'd done. Just a couple of generations down, they didn't know that the Jordan split that the walls fell down, that the sun stood still, or they heard the story and they're like, yeah, right, because they looked at the lives of their parents. And some way along the way they said, man, everybody in church is just a hypocrite. "Eh, You say you follow God, but your life's no different than anybody else. This clearly isn't a center point of your life. Chair number three they walk away. They walked away. Verse 11, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, the false idol gods. These are the gods, the idol gods around them that required horrible things like child sacrifices, They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them up out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. Tragic. Then they enter this period of the judges where it's this constant cycle where God will bring someone in their life to call them back to God, and then they'll go back into their sin and back into their idolatry, and they'll experience awful things in their culture and in their life. And the breakdown happens, because chair number two doesn't decide to live their lives for Jesus, doesn't decide that they're going to slide over into chair number one and be the ones who say, God, I'm going to write a blank check with my life. They look at their parents. They respect their parents because their parents did that. But they're, you know, a little more cautious, a little more concerned about here and now. Maybe they grew up not experiencing... Um, some of the creature comforts of life. And they grow up going, you know, I think I want to experience the creature comforts of life a little bit more. For whatever reason, it breaks down. You see this pattern a little bit later. David, King David, he's a man, his whole heart's after God. Is he perfect? Oh, no. Read his story. He's a broken man, but his heart is after God. When confronted with his sin, he does what? He repents. He confesses his sin. His motivation of his heart is to please God. What does God think about me? His passion is, I want to build the temple of God. Even though God says, no, you can't do that. You're a man. You have too much bloodshed on your hand. His son Solomon comes along. And, man, he starts out. It looks like he's going to follow right in the steps of his father David. He prays God God shows up in a dream and says, you know, what's your request? He says, give me wisdom. And God goes, wow, great request. I'm going to give you wisdom. And because you had a heart for that, I'm going to give you wealth too. Well, in the midst of his great wisdom, the smartest guy who ever lived up to Jesus, he thought, I'm so smart, I can handle it. Before you know it, he, he marries 700 women and, and women and takes on 300 concubines. Now, for the smartest guy in the world, that's a bonehead move, isn't it? Like, what are you thinking? Where David's passion was building the temple. Solomon built it, but you could tell his passion was building great palaces. It was great wealth for himself. At one point, they were bringing tribute equivalent to $4 billion of gold every year, these other nations. The guy was like the richest man to live in this whole period of history. He'd experienced everything. And at the end of his life, he, he had compromised so many things in his life that he ended up building temples to his foreign wives' gods and going along. I mean, he wouldn't have said he was really into it probably, but he put up with it. He went along and made sacrifices with his lives. He, he descended into idolatry. His son, Rehoboam, third generation, came along no heart for God at all. He rejects wise counsel. His motivation is to please himself, to do what I think is best. His passion was personal power. And he's the guy that split the kingdom. Third chair. The gravitational pull of generations is away from intimate relationship with God. Which chair are you in? Which chair are you in? Chair number one seeks to love people and serve them into the kingdom of God. Chair number two tends to seek success at whatever cost in life. Chair number three typically seeks whatever he thinks will make him or herself happy. There's not a real reference point. Chair number one, the foundation for lifestyle it is the Scriptures, what God says about life. Chair number two tends to follow other, other people's behavior and take their cues on right and wrong from what other people are doing. Chair number three, what does society say? Whatever it is, it's acceptable. Chair number one sees the Bible as the authority of life. The Scripture is the authority of life. And not just that, not just like owner's mantle, but, but something that gives life. That they meditate on it. Like David said, Oh, I delight in your law. I meditated on, on it day and night. Why? Because it gives life to me. It keeps me centered and focused on serving God with all my heart. Chair number two believes kind of that the Bible is relative to the situation. It brings comfort. It's a very devotional faith. Read it for comfort. makes me happy. I've got some verses on the wall, some verses on coffee mugs. But I don't really read it and meditate on it and make an effort to live my life based around it. Genre number three, it's just a cultural relic. It's irrelevant to life. In fact, even worse, it's probably misogynistic, the patriarchy. Certainly doesn't apply to my life today. Chair number one, knows God as a personal friend, is a friend of God, has a deep relationship with him, worships God, depends on him. Chair number two, met Jesus as a child. And probably as a teenager, had some experiences, but really knows God more as a doctrine than a person. Chair number two. Chair number one. You know what? For somebody living in this place, your life is sold out for God. You have a testimony that's usually like, hey, ah, man, last week we were praying for this family, and God did this. It was crazy. Chair number two, your testimony is, well, 20 years ago, I prayed a prayer. Chair number three just basically ignores God. Chair number one. All hail King Jesus. Christ is the Lord of my life. Chair number two, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Chair number three, Jesus, I think he's just a religious leader. Chair number one, praise as a deep personal conversation with God. Chair number two, praise before meals. Can get up if called on to come pray in front of church, could do a pretty convincing job of it. But prayer is really no part of daily life. Prayer number three doesn't really believe in prayer at all, except for in the case of emergency and that there's no foxholes or atheists in foxholes. Everybody prays at that point, right? When it comes to their career, chair number one, the job, my career is a platform God has called me to for the purpose of ministering to others. That my vocation is something I've entered into as a calling of God and it's sacred, and the call is to carry his kingdom into this thing and use this to advance his kingdom in the world. Chair number two, and job is the only way to earn money and get ahead in life. And I'll try, maybe, maybe try to bring my faith into it, but that's usually kind of awkward. Chair number three, job, just a self advancement. Which chair are you in? Which chair best describes your condition today? And a deeper question is, if you choose to do nothing, which chair will your children most likely occupy? I want to invite Winston up here. We're going to close in the song in just a second. The gravitational pull of generations is away from intimate relationship with God. It's just the way it is. But it doesn't have to be that way. I love this little scripture where Paul writes to, his, to Timothy, my namesake. And he goes, I see your sincere faith. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and then lived in your mother, Eunice, and now lives in you. See, that's the way it's meant to be lived. That's when somebody from chair number two goes, man, my parents were amazing servants of God. You know what? I'm going to slide over to chair number one. I'm not going to be content staying here. I'm going to make Jesus the center of my life. And I'm going to reach down from chair number one, and I'm going to grab my grandkids. I don't care what these guys are doing. I'm going after my grandkids' hearts. I'm going to pray for them. God, get a hold of my kids. I'm going to go after my grandkids, and I'm going to tell them all about the things God has done, and I'm going to call them and say, I want you to live your life. Your life can have kingdom significance and kingdom meaning. You can change the world. You know, world changers sit in chair number one. And man, I know some of them. <laughs> Guys like Lynn Green and Don Stevens, Mercy Ships. I got to meet Lauren Cunningham, the founder of Youth with a Mission, one of my heroes. I got to meet him a year and a half ago at the funeral of <laughs> Charlie Green, who some of you know in this room. Another chair one guy who bet the farm to follow Jesus. I want to be a chair one guy, but you know what? Even as a pastor, my constant temptation is to even make this about me. Just about, you know, a strong organization, good team, to slip into areas where my heart's not all focused on him that it ends up being more wrapped up around me, where I might have taken some great risks in my younger years, now kind of being like, yeah, I kind of got a lot to lose now. It's every one of our temptation. You know, you may have started in chair one, but you may at some point have made a subtle shift in your heart, and you don't even know how it happened, but if you look up, all of a sudden, what you began living for was yourself and what i want to invite you to do right now you want to go ahead and stand as we close what i want to invite you to do you just bow your heads close your eyes and if you know i think i've been living a little more in chair 2 than i want to lately and I want, God, you to light my heart up again for you like maybe you did at first, or I want you to light my heart up for you like you did for my parents, and that's why I'm here today. Would you just stretch your hands out in front of you? I just want you to agree and invite the Holy Spirit, because you can't you can discipline yourself, but ultimately it's you surrendering to the Holy Spirit that brings change in your life. Would you repent of maybe that sin or that thing that you know has been driving a wedge between you and God? It was a compromise in your life. You've been ignoring it. I mean, that's something you keep clicking or a habit or an addiction, an attitude in your life. Would you repent of that and say, God, I am committing through the power of your Holy Spirit to deal with this thing in my life. Maybe it's just um, your life has reoriented around yourself. You need to reorient your life around him. Would you just, as you you pray right now, just say, Holy Spirit, I want to live for you. Change my heart, God. Jesus, I want to live for you. I want to be a world changer for you. And some of you, you need to risk again. You have so much fear in your life. You need to risk for the kingdom. And those that are in this chair number three, you're like, I don't even know about this whole thing. I don't even know if it's true. I want to call you. You don't have to land in chair number two. I want you to jump right to chair number one. I am here to tell you, that the power of God is available to you in your lives as you commit your life to following him and give your life to Jesus and you can actually make a radical difference for his kingdom. Lord, may that be true in our lives. Lord, for the single mom in the room right now or the mom who feels like she's carrying the whole spiritual burden of the family right now, Lord, Encourage her, comfort her. Let her know, keep going. Timothy, my namesake, is a good reason. The faith that existed in your grandmother and your mother, keep going, follow Jesus. And for that man in the room that realizes he hasn't been stepping out and following you and and just committing his life to you, would he make that shift? The greatest gift he could give his wife right now, or maybe his mom, to say... I'm yours, Lord. I'm yours. And for that person who's in in chair three, that they would just call out to you and say, Jesus, I want to live my life for you. I want you as my savior, but I want to follow you. I want life to be about you. I want to make a difference for you. I repent of my sin. Lord, would you raise up in this congregation generations of world changers, Lord. Generations that would shape this community and this world for you. Lord, Western Colorado has been used like that for years. Would you do that in our midst, God? Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.